All right, everybody, welcome back to the Mindful Hunter podcast. I'm your host, as always, Jay Nickel. Really interesting episode this week. We have Ben Storak on from Arcadia Outfitting. So right out of the gate, there's devastating kind of blow to Arcadia Outfitting. The McKay Fire, is it 26,000 hectares, Ben? Almost 26,000, yep. So nuked almost 26,000 hectares, including um, the entirety of of Ben's camp and everything he's built in the last four years. And we're going to get into that in a little bit, but Ben has also been a guide since I think he was around 15 years old. So an extensive hunting experience, lots of BC experience. And I really want to spend some time in that because I think he's got some great experience and information that we can all learn from. And then we're going to, we'll, we'll cover kind of what happened with the fire and what his plans are to rebuild. But I want to say right now, just so I don't forget to mention it later on, if you go to Ben's Instagram page, which is Arcadia Outfitting, all one word, I believe, yep. there will be a link in his bio for the GoFundMe page. And anything can help. And one little tip I'll let everybody know, there's a little slider there that you can choose to give money to GoFundMe or choose not to give money to GoFundMe. And I know that's a bit of a sticking point for some people, but if you just slide that to zero, even if you only got five or 10 bucks, 100% of those proceeds go to Ben and Ben is pointing 100% of all that money back to rebuilding um, the outfit. Uh, So that would be greatly appreciated if you could give it a share on social media, pass it along or give some funds from yourself. I'm sure it would be greatly appreciated. Ben, do you want to mention anything else on that front, you know, before we actually get into it? No, the big thing is like everyone keeps asking where the money's going to go and you know what, why they're donating. Right. And like you said, a hundred percent of these proceeds, it's going to rebuilding what we lost. That's as simple as it is. You know, we had three cabins, uh, two additional sheds kind of off the main cabin, tons of contents. Uh, we had all of my ATVs, my, my flat deck, everything up there that was for our business, everything. Um, and it's all gone. So it's literally going towards replacing what we had. Um, so it's as simple as that. Yeah. And I would like to add, like, I've seen the workmanship and the, the, the kind of beauty of that camp and you can't really put a price tag on that. Um, so that's the other part of this kind of the emotional hit. I can't even imagine, and let's not get off on a sub, but I just can't imagine the hit that that's been to the family too. And especially after the year and a half of COVID, like, I feel like outfitters were like this. I have a couple of really good buddies. One super good buddy is Jeff Lander who runs primitive outfitting. Um, and he's got operations in Prince George and in Alberta. And I talk to that guy almost every other day. And so I feel like I've gotten an inside look at what it's been going, what's been going on. And I feel like it's like this forgotten industry. Like people were talking about restaurants and shit. And it's like, I'm sorry, I don't mean to be a dick, but you still had people buying your food. Totally. And we have this entire industry of outfitters and none of them are getting rich in the first place. Like it's not known as a lucrative, you do it for love or you don't do it at all. That's right. Not saying you can't make a good living, but it's not like it's rolling in hand over fist. And then you essentially go through at least two full seasons for some people, three, depending on if you do spring and fall hunting of zero American traffic. And in British Columbia, and I don't know if people realize this, it it's very tricky as a British Columbia outfitter to have British Columbia clients. I wish people could go and take the services of a BC outfitter and then respect the fact that that's how those people make their livelihood. 
and not go back to the same areas and do less than ethical things. But the bottom line is that's not what happens the majority of the time. So BC outfitters, like, cause most people say, well, why wouldn't you just sell to BC residents? And it's like, you're kind of kicking yourself in the ass because a lot of these people will then come because you're kind of showing them your honey holes, you're showing them where the animals are. And that's why American clients are so important. It's a vital part of the BC outfitting industry and sector. A hundred percent. And, you know, over 90% of our clientele, probably 95% is either American or international. <clears throat> we get the odd Canadian. They're never from BC. Um, BC residents can hunt on their own. Why would they come with us and have to pay a bunch of money? The odd guy might here and there, just because it's someone that says, Hey, you know what? I don't want to have to fork out my own cash for a trailer for my ATV, blah, blah, blah. You have it. I've got retirement funds. Let's do it. So those, the odd Joe Blow will. But man, the, the average Canadian in general, it doesn't matter if you're from BC, Alberta, Ontario, wherever, they don't usually hunt in or pay for a hunt in Canada. It just doesn't happen. Um, so yeah, it's super, super challenging. We've been almost shut down for the last year and a half completely. Yeah, I can't even imagine. Okay, and, you no, go ahead. No, and I was going to say, that's the whole tourism industry in general. You know, it's not just outfitters, but yeah. tourism. Now on now on the on the upside, I did just notice that fully vaccinated Americans are going to be allowed in British Columbia as of the first of August. So that does mean there's a little bit of a hope for a fall season for for some of the outfitters. The interesting thing is hunters tend to be right-ish of center, and they're not like jumping in line to go get vaccinations. So I think it's like it's kind of a double-edged sword. It's good news. But I also think that our, our prime demographic are not the like fully vaccinated folks to some degree. So I don't think that means that the clients are going to be flooding back in full force, but there will be at least a, a possibility of some, of some American clients coming through. I would say, honestly, probably 40, maybe 50% of the clients that come up to, to hunt up here have maybe been vaccinated. Yeah. The rest are diehard against it. They're not getting it no matter what. And yep. they're still not welcome, which yep. sucks. So it, it helps a bit, but it doesn't help fully. That's no, for sure. I, yeah, it's like it's like a, a half step. At least it's in the right direction. For sure. Um, I've had a mount stuck in Arizona for the last year. My archery buck from Arizona, and I can't even drive over to the border to pick it up. But at least now, I think with this latest round, it's still tricky because it's not really essential travel. But I don't think they can legally stop you either. So. I think maybe by mid-August, early September, things should be in a position where I can get that buck shipped up. At least I've got some good friends that are willing to sit on it. But it's like it's it's amazing to me how inconvenient not being able to go across the border has been. It's been a nightmare for so many things. Like look at us, we're trying to get new ATVs and equipment to replace what we had. It's impossible. Yeah. People can't give you a timeline on when you can buy stuff. Even if you put a deposit down right now, they're like, well, it might be here in six months, maybe a little sooner, but that's being optimistic. So it's, it's been a headache. I don't know where the last 20 days have gone since this fire hit. Like it's just been nonstop phone calls, emails, uh, 20 days lost. To Dude, my life. I, I remember the whole thing from your stories. Like, Oh, there's a fire that looks like it's close to camp. Oh shit. That's camp. Oh, the fucking mountain is on, is on fire. And then just, you know, I think you had a buddy who was maybe in the forest service or part of the firefighters and you got that kind of initial footage. And it was just like, my God, man, devastation. Like, I think your footage did such a good job of highlighting 
the devastating force of what those, like looking at that bowed out fireplace door and what was left of your rifle. And like, it just turned your entire camp to powder. Like it looked like it was professionally leveled and cleaned. You know what I mean? Like it was just, it was shocking, man. And it's like that for 40, a 40 mile radius all around everywhere. Everywhere is like that. There's not a stand of live trees anywhere I drove. So how much of your tenure got nuked? So it's still, the fire's still going. So it's still not confirmed, but from the looks of things over a third of my concession, right in the heart of the, the area where our base camp was, that's kind of some of our best cat hunting, some of our better bear hunting. That's major mule deer winter range. So thousands and thousands of mule deer come from the Chilcotin from the West and they migrate to the Fraser river along that stretch because it's a mild climate. That area is gone. I don't know what those mule deer are going to do this winter. There's no cover. There's no vegetation. No, it's a dead zone. So my hopes (sighs) are they they will migrate somewhere else, find somewhere else to go in the meantime. But I think a lot of those deer might've gotten nuked in the fire too. Right. Um, Because for example, nearby ranch land about five kilometers from our cabin site there should be a hundred to 300 deer in those fields right now does and fawns primarily we saw 30 and i sat wow. there and watched for a couple hours and there's 30 it's uh it's not good to see no. that and those deer are residents they don't leave the country so i think they're not around anymore so man. pretty brutal devastating yeah and then the summer's just getting going man we're we're leaving for a sheep hunt here in three weeks and i'm just like i don't even want to look at the news man because it's just like i don't know am i is is the area i'm gonna hunt gonna be on fire am i gonna be able to actually drive it's not like in british columbia you got a whole lot of options do you know what i mean like if one of the roads is closed your drive just got 10 hours longer and if both of the roads are closed that's it unless you want to charter a flight you know, which is not altogether a practical option. No, no, no. Okay. It has a lot of implications for sure. Yeah. hundred percent. And we'll, we'll come back to this because I do want to spend, I want to spend some time on the rebuild strategy because I think not only do you have the practical structural issues, you also have the business clientele issues having slowed down for a year and a half before this. And I'm interested in what your strategy is to kind of rebuild the actual business as well, which I think poses some, some interesting challenges. And I also think there's some pent up money in the hunting industry. I think a lot of people have wanted to go hunting for a while. And I think once these floodgates open, I think there is going to be a bit of a, a bit of a boom. I'm in the kind of business consulting strategy end of things in my day job. And a lot of the previous reports, if you look at other pandemics and other kind of worldwide catastrophes that shut commerce down, there tends to be a boom afterwards simply because there's like this pent up economic pressure that seems to, so hopefully the same thing um, holds true with hunting. And I think it will, because a lot of people are itching. Like I've never seen so much outpouring of interest to come to Canada. Like so many dudes posting on Instagram, you know, Canada, please open your borders. I want to come up for my bear hunt or whatever the case Maybe. Um, okay. Anyways, let's back it. Let's back it up because I, I'd like, I'm super interested in like, in how you got to where you are or where you find yourself now in the first place. So are you a BC boy born and bred or did you come here from somewhere else? 
No, grew up in central Alberta. My dad okay. was an RCMP officer. We moved over 23 times growing up all over the friggin' place, you know, which was good because we weren't, didn't have a home base. We got to explore a lot and it kind of gave me the ability to pick up and move whenever I wanted to. Right. So I wasn't, I wasn't the person that was a homeboy or a homebody. Um, so this industry we're in the guiding, I mean, we're here, we're there, we're everywhere. So that kind of fit into the lifestyle I knew, which was good. Um, but grew up in Rocky mountain house, Alberta, which okay. a lot of hunting guides are from, um, which is pretty interesting. Read your area as well, but uh, live in West Bank now, Kelowna area. And we are here now because our outfit is, you know, a decent driving distance from here. My wife is Mexican. We needed a good climate. Kelowna fits the bill. You know, we, we tried the island for a little bit. It was way too rainy. Uh, yeah. It was a nightmare. So this is still hard on her, but this, this is working so far. Okay. So yeah, I've been in the industry, been guiding since I was 15, wrangling, I guess, since I was 15. You can legally guide when you're 18. Been doing that for that many years. So this is 17 years in the industry now. Um, and, you know, probably I was about five, six years in before I realized, like, this is this is what I want to do. This is my passion. Don't want to do anything else. Um, so four years ago, just over four years ago, we were given the opportunity by the outfitter we were working for on Vancouver Island. John Seavers to buy uh, what was Fraser River Outfitters. It was, uh, you know, the outfit along the Fraser River. Never thought he'd sell it. It was his baby. You know, it was a beautiful little area. And he offered it to us first. And I said, holy crap, man. Like, we need to make this happen. And went to all our investors who over the years, over that 17-year period said, man, when you find an area, let us know. We'll, we'll buy it with you for sure. And these were good friends of ours. And as soon as you submit that idea to them and you give them the actual numbers that you make and your profit, your overhead, blah, 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 all these businessmen that have, you know, multi-million dollar businesses, they're like, well, well this isn't very profitable. Like what's the yeah. deal here? And I'm like, this is outfitting, you know, like, yeah, we make this amount of money, which is better than the average job, but we put a lot into it as well. And it's, you know, time consuming everything. And they, they expected this to be a million dollar business. And it's like, yeah. eh, it's not the case. So we went through over and, and sorry to interrupt, give because the listeners will have zero context about what a concession would go for. And I don't want to get into any private information, but like yeah. put some round edges on it. Like, uh, like give me an idea of what X amount of ground with X amount of species, like even an upper and lower range of what a concession would go for. And that's the other thing for yeah. because guiding is treated differently or outfitting is treated differently in, in different provinces. Just so everybody's aware in British Columbia, you were granted a concession and then that you have the exclusive outfitting rights. Now, if it's crown land, BC resident hunters can still hunt you. It's not like it's private land, Correct. but you have the exclusive guiding rights. Another interesting point people should remember is you cannot pay for hunting rights on private land in British Columbia either. You can do it as a favor. You can do it as, as a handshake. Somebody can agree to let you, but you, it's not like the States where you can add a bunch of leases to your, and then guarantee yourself some exclusive rights. So just a couple points, mm -hmm. it's done by concession. You guys get exclusive rights and you can't lease private land here in BC, but give some rough edges to like what a concession would go for here. No, absolutely. And everything you said is hundred percent correct. That's for sure. Um, low end outfits, you know, like if you, if you buy an, an outfit that has simply black bear hunting and mule deer hunting, maybe for example, 
you'll be looking at anywhere from a hundred thousand minimum to three fifty thousand for a low end outfit. A lot of outfits now they're going for, you know, a million to a million and a half, which is kind of the area, the range I'm in roughly, you know, it's all based on the size of land you have, the quality of the game you have and the permits that come with it, like bighorn permits, for example, or quota. Right. Yeah. And then you get into the upper range, which is Northern BC outfits with stone sheep, elk, goats, moose, all that kind of stuff. And the Yukon and NWT and those outfits are going for 1.5 to 8 million right now. Yeah. So, Oh man, a lot of them, a lot of them you can't even pay off in 10 years, right? A lot yeah. of them, it's just a dream and it's, it's not a good investment whatsoever, but it's something that these people have wanted to do their whole life and they'll be paying it off for the next 30 years, you know? Yep or they actually start making a profit on it, but it's a hell of a career. It's a beautiful lifestyle. If you're, if you love being in the mountains and, and so that's why we're doing it, you know, we're not getting rich, but we're rich in life. As I yep. always say, like we love the experience. So hundred percent. So you get the opportunity to buy Fraser Valley or Fraser river outfitters. outfitters and yep. then, then what happens? So the outfitter maintained his name. Uh, you know, because he built that reputation up. So we had to find a new name for the outfit. So that's where Arcadia outfitting comes from. Arcadia essentially means like humans and, and uh, nature are kind of one in the same. We're kind of living in harmony with one another, which, you know, people will say, well, that's, you know, that's kind of, you're a bit of a hypocrite there because you're killing them, but it's not the case, right? We're out there. We're conservationists. We're maintaining the landscape. We're looking after the place we're doing something that should be done because naturally, you know, nature goes out of balance all the time. You know, wolves come in, they decimate moose populations, mule deer, et cetera. And we try to maintain that balance. So I think Arcadia was a very fitting name. Starts with an A, puts us on the front of the list. Yeah. Alphabetically. You know, there's a lot, of, a lot of pluses there for sure. So that's where Arcadia came from. Okay. And it's easy to spell all that stuff. So uh, yeah, that's where we got the name from. So when we acquired the outfit, uh, we basically have 1300 square miles of hunting concession that we own the rights to take international clients hunting on for, for pay basically is what it means. Um, it came with three cabins, uh, which is our base camp. And these were super, super basic plywood structures. There was, there was kind of indoor plumbing, but it wasn't winterized. It was super shitty. There was like a shower that was rat infested and full of, all kinds of mouse turds and it was nasty. And give us an idea of locate, like what kind of distance drive are you from something most people would recognize? Yeah. So we're, we're a couple hours North of Lillooet okay. uh, along the West Pavilion road without getting, giving too, too many details away, sure. obviously, but yep. um, it's in the middle of nowhere. There's no, no mailbox for the location. I mean, it's, you can drive to it, but it's hard to get to. Okay. Uh, they don't plow the roads. Like remember the first year we had the place, man, there was three feet of snow and I was plowing through these snow drifts with my Tacoma, just full board, trying not to get stuck and made it to camp, but I was wintered in, I wasn't getting out of there for the next week, <laughs> <laughs> for example. So yeah, it's, it's full on. Um, but yeah, so we, we came with these structures and they, they were shitty, man. They were good, good foundational base, but they involved a lot of work. So when we first got the place, we acquired it June 20th, which was on my birthday. In I saw that the other day. That's badass. Yeah. yeah, it was pretty crazy. In 2017. And immediately after I got the place, we went north. I went north Arctic Red. 
to guide for the full season. Um, so, so Arctic Red is an outfitter and not somebody you've worked for in the past. Yep. Arctic Red okay. are outfitters. Yep. They're in the Northwest Territories. Um, okay. So I've been with them now for nine years. Um, okay. Doll sheep, caribou, moose, uh, awesome outfit, all backpack hunting. Um, so I went north and then we came out end of September, sorry, mid-September. And then I immediately had to buy all the equipment, you know, all this, all the new stuff we needed, ATVs, flat deck trailer, blah, 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 everything. And went to work trying to rental the place for the, a week before our first clients came. And our first clients were two California bighorn sheep hunters. So this okay. is a high-end hunt, full stress, like never done one before, you know, sheep hunted my whole life, but never done these in this location. So it was a learning curve. It was it was stressful for sure. You know, when we, it went off without a hitch, we killed two beautiful rams within three days, you know, and that's the beauty of this area is it's got an awesome sheep population. Um, now did but, you guys get hit by some Movi? Did I read that right? Yeah. So we can get into that later, but we've okay. had a triple whammy. So we had Movi the last two years, which yeah. decimated our sheep population. And then we had COVID that shut us down and then we had Bro. fire. So but things come in threes. So I'm yeah, so hopefully this is it. And if you can make it through this, you know what I mean? I, I don't know what else can stop you. Oh man. I don't know. I'm sure there's something, but yeah. anyways, yeah, that's, yeah, that's all happened to us the last four years. So it's been a tough start. So we, we went to town renovating these cabins. You know, I'm, I'm the kind of guy that likes doing everything myself, you know, to try to save money where I can and just learn as I go and, you know, I grew up working with my dad, building structures and stuff, but just basic stuff, right? I was handing them nails and I was counting nails when I could. So I was trying to learn as I went. And we spent the first from September until Christmas time renovating as much as we could. My wife was out there with me. Um, you know, she's from Mexico again, big time city girl. Yeah, That was super hard on her. You know, women hate renovations to begin with. And when you're yeah. living in them like that and there's nowhere to go, this is a 400 square foot cabin. That's their big one. You know, we finished the, the little bathroom first and she was living in this bathroom trying to work and trying to do her thing, you know, sitting at the sink as her desk. I'll never forget that for months on end, right? So That's we crazy. did the best we could that first year while trying to learn how to winterize the place with a new water system and having that freeze and water lines blow. And it's just, it was never ending. So this learning curve was pretty steep. And this went on for four years. You know, I was doing everything myself. And this last year with COVID, we had a lot of time off. So I managed to finish everything that okay. I wanted to do. The place was finished. Everything was rented. It was beautiful. There was nothing else to do unless I really wanted to expand and, and right. do something totally new. So the place was perfect. And then this fire hit us and wiped it out. So the four years of hard labor and work was gone. I could not believe it. It's still hard to believe today, even though I walked through the place and saw it myself. Yeah it still really hasn't sunk in like, yeah. yeah, it's, it's crazy. And even, so we went up to the area, uh, last week, the restrictions were lifted and we could access the area to see for ourselves. And like I said, we drove around for that 40 mile radius basically. And, and everything is burnt. I, I don't recognize the place anymore. You know, I, I see little ponds that are 500 yards below that before there was huge ponderosa pine, and I, you know, I couldn't see that pond there before. I didn't even know it existed. Right. And now you can see it perfectly. You know, it, it's insane. There, there's huge line of sights now. If there's an animal walking through that timber, you can see it from a kilometer away. It's, right. it's, 
going to be a nightmare for hunting in the future for residents that come in and, and pound it, you know, and I'm a resident too. So I understand people want to go hunt, but we need to give that area a break for a year or two, because these animals, that's their home. It's decimated. They don't know what the hell happened or where, where to go. And they're wandering around like idiots now too. Right. Yeah. If they're there at all. So I've been in talks with the biologists and try to figure it out, you know, what people do in this situation. Right. And I know they have shut areas down in the past that have been hit like this. And that might be the case that uh, might be what we have to do here just to prevent that population from being decimated further. Right. So that's the last thing we need. Um, And and so, so let's back up a little bit. What all uh, species do you kind of offer or have the rights to hunt with through Arcadia? Yeah. Good question. So uh, in the spring season, so from April till June, we do black bear hunting. Um, Yeah. Black bear, color face bears, nice bear population. In the wintertime, we do cat hunts. So we have a good population of cougar or mountain lion, as you want to call them, whatever, bobcat and lynx. And then we do wolf hunting as well. And you run dogs, right? Uh, I don't have my own dogs. So I hired okay. that for it. Yeah, my gotcha. wife we get dogs, uh, unfortunately. Okay. <laughs> I, don't, I don't blame her. But yeah, we have a good pack of dogs Okay, uh, that we hire out. And, and then we do mule deer hunts. We have a couple moose tags uh, over the years, super small population though. And we haven't even tried to sell them because that population has been decimated as well by wolves. And gotcha. And then we have our, uh, our bighorn population as well. So that's kind of, that's the reason we bought the area. Like I'm a sheep hunter at heart and that bighorn herd is pretty special. It's kind of the mother herd of a lot of transplanted sheep that have been sent down South to the States and things like that. Okay. So pretty amazing population of bighorn sheep for sure. And what do you think the, has the Moby like run its course for the most part and we're on the way back up, or do you think there's still more devastation to occur? So for people that don't know what Moby is, it's this pneumonia disease that gets in the sheep's lungs. It's a bacterial infection that does not go away. Okay. So a sheep, if it contracts Moby, the way they get it typically is from nose to nose or saliva contact. And you can get it from domestic sheep, right? And those are the, some of the most at-risk populations are these, like a sheep in the Northern Rockies isn't running into a domestic sheep, but a sheep down in the Fraser Valley is very quite likely going to run into a domestic sheep where it could pass off something like this. Exactly. So it is transferred from domestics. That's how they contract it. Uh, It's not a naturally wild disease. Okay. So that's why it's so devastating. Oh, so they don't, that, that, that explains why they don't have any like antibodies or natural defense. It's like smallpox coming into North America a hundred years ago. Exactly. You know, over the millennia, maybe there have been some cases of Movi and maybe they've gotten over it and survived but the diseases that they're contracting from these domestics is not something they've ever seen before. So it's kind of like white man bringing the, the disease to, to the native populations. It decimates them. Yeah. So they cannot get over it. So where it's most devastating is the lamb crop. You know, adults might be able to survive the pneumonia because they're strong enough physically, yep. Yep. but a lamb, it, it, it wipes them out and they do not get away from a predator. You know, they're so weak, they can't run. Right. So if it doesn't, doesn't, if the infection doesn't kill them itself, a predator will. And that's where we see these populations just decline slowly over time because the, the lamb crop doesn't make it. So the adults get older, they die and the lambs don't make it. They, they die. So your population just, it doesn't grow. Right. So the, what we have done in the area, the last two years, we went to the North end of the area, which is kind of a pocket of sheep. And it's, it's a, 
it's breaking ground for Canadian uh, biology and wildlife. They did it a bit in the States, and this was the first time they tried it in Canada, in my area. We captured 42, or like basically all of the ewes and young sheep or young rams that were in these ewe groups, captured them all, tested them for Movi through a nasal swab, which is basically just like COVID. Yep. If they had Movi, the only way to get rid of it is to euthanize them. So we had to do that. There's no cure for this right now because there's hundreds and hundreds of strains. So there, you know, research doesn't go into Movi. It goes into research for humans, right? Yeah. So we had to euthanize them. So of 42, we had to euthanize 11 ewes and one young ram, which was just a phenomenal. And this was like a little separate population that wasn't in direct contact with the other population. Exactly. There's okay. kind of, yeah, biologists know this because they call our sheep from both ends and sure. they typically don't cross. Okay. I mean, there probably is some crossover from rams, but yeah, that's a little complicated. But anyways, um, so we euthanized 11. We sent the rest out there and we monitored them through Wild Sheep Society BC and other surveys. And the lamb population was phenomenal. Typical lamb population survival rates are 20 to 30% survival. Okay. Uh, Wow. Which is pretty low, right? Yeah. A 20 to 30% population will continue growing. It'll grow slowly, but it'll grow. We had 50% retention. So we had this phenomenal retention rate of lamb crop that survived the first four to six months of a birth. And if they get past Movi in that first time frame, they're going to make it. Okay. Great. So, um, Part of our program, you know, taking out cougars and predators from our area, which is a big part of what we do, has helped that significantly as well because a lot of that is predation. Right. So that was super, super positive to see. So we did the remaining area this past winter in March with Helen Schwant and our regional biologist, Chris Proctor, Francis Iredale. We captured the remaining ewes, euthanized two out of uh, 52. So there was... Great way less Moby in that group, which was phenomenal to see. Um, But lamb crop was still low in certain areas that I'm not able to access because of gated systems from first nations and things like that. Okay. So I'm trying to work with them to get access to be able to help our population because that's predation. That's not Moby. um, But that's an example. So that being said, we're looking for super positive results in the whole herd now, and we should be on the up and up as long as I can ma- maintain that predator management and we keep keep Moby out. The issue we might see now is I don't know what's going to happen with this fire. It completely went through all of their their uh, river flat kind of home range. Okay. I think the majority of the sheep probably survived from what our biologists think and kind of know historically happen to sheep in wildfire zones the factor that we have in our area is that river right that's a pretty hard line that divides our concession so some sheep might have swam the river and they do that we know that but if they swim the river they might come in contact with other sheep that have not been tested for moby and then bring it back again so now we're fighting two fires right as literally and figuratively um yeah. So we'll see what happens with them. Who knows? Yeah, I don't that's know. Wild. There's so many factors up in the air right now. Yeah, it's great. Well, and I think people need to understand this too, like the the kind of risk factors that go on with with owning a concession. Like I remember when they banned the grizzly hunt. I was like, my God, man, the amount of people and what can you imagine like 
there are a couple of animals. The first thing that comes to mind is sheep and grizzly. After that, I would think goat that could really drive up the price of the concession. Cause you're talking like very, to put this in context, like an average stone sheep hunt, which you don't hunt, but just talk about would go for like 60 grand in, in Canada and probably 60 us. So the, the factor, the multiple that you're going to pay for that concession is exponentially higher than like, like you mentioned earlier, like a black bear concession. And I was just thinking, imagine the guys who bought like grizzly territories a year and a half or two years. And then what if that was your, like, there's a bunch of grizzlies there. There's probably not a bunch of other stuff here. There's was probably also your primary species of interest. And yep. then you just got wiped out with one legislative change. And the same thing can happen to you. Like yeah. not only do you have to worry about the disease and the fire, but if the wildlife service decides that, yeah, populations are getting a little bit low, that they can aggressively limit numbers kind of at will, you know, like, I don't think they're irresponsible people and they're going to make good decisions, but in the same breath, you don't have a whole lot of say in, in that, you know what I mean? Exactly. And that's already happened to us. We already lost one of our quota over a five-year right. period because of Movi yeah. and further Movi and these fires might limit us even more. And that's the only way we're really making any kind of money on our outfit right now Yeah, are those cheap ones. So we're already super limited. Yeah. <clears throat> so where's your personal interests lie in hunting? Like what, what was it that originally, is it the sheep in the mountain and the backpack stuff or where's your, yeah, where's your own personal interest lie? What do you like to spend your time doing? Although I bet you over the past couple of years, it hasn't been a whole lot of personal uh, ventures as far as hunting goes with all the time you've had to spend getting Arcadia off the ground and then working for other people, you know, to pay for it in the interim. No, good question for sure. You know, as a, as a hunting guide, if, if you're dedicated to your profession, you don't have time to hunt for yourself. Yeah. You're stuck there with these other clients and, and to some degree, it's just as rewarding, if not more, because you're taking someone who would never otherwise be able to achieve that hunt, be successful. And maybe it's an individual who has no knowledge on how to hunt that animal or physically can't without your help. Right. So to make that dream come true is pretty rewarding um, in itself, you know, and, and for sure, my passion lies in sheep hunting, you know, just yeah. being in the mountains. Um, I've always been a horseback guy for, for 15 years. I have been. Um, and the only reason I'm not now is because of our own outfit. I don't have the time to continue the horseback operation at Arctic Red. Okay. Um, but we were running that for years and years. And uh, I have a blast with horses. I love doing the pack string stuff and camping with them. It's just got this beautiful kind of harmony to it. And it's this uh, the original way that people hunted those remote locations, right? So yeah. um, that's what I prefer. Backpack hunting has its own... Uh, beauties to it. You don't have to catch horses. You can wake up and make a coffee and you can glass sheep right there and then. And there's so many less stresses involved, but when the water's high, you got to cross a river, you're going to get washed away compared to a horse can walk across no problem. Right. So there's pluses and minuses for sure. But yeah, on a personal level, yeah, man, sheep hunting for sure. Any, any mountain hunting, even mountain mule deer, I'm getting into that the last four years. And I find it harder than sheep hunting, especially in BC um it's just so challenging they're in the timber they're in the alpine still they only come out first thing in the morning late at night you got to know where they are they're super smart oh, it's mountain mule deer hunting in bc is a lot of fun and it's really underrated yeah i'm actually i was kind of up in the air with what i was going to do with my fall and i think i've decided on a 
somewhat late season solo alpine mule deer hunt. I think maybe closer to the end of October, try and get a little deeper in the rut, have maybe some shitty weather, scare away some of the other pressure. Yep. Um, and probably a rifle hunt. I'm primarily an archery hunter, but this year I kind of ended up having more rifle hunts. Um, and it's going to open up some other territory for me, but I tend to like to go pretty deep and I tend to, I do prefer to hunt solo. Um, and I think that's going to be, I'm, I'm really looking forward to it. I've still never taken a mule deer in British Columbia. I have one in Montana with my rifle and I have one in Arizona with my bow, but I haven't, and I've got several blacktail in British Columbia, but no, no mule deer. And I kind of feel the same. It's funny. This is going to be my first sheep hunt and everybody goes on and on about how hard sheep hunting is. And I get it. I'm sure it's going to be hard. But for me, archery hunting elk in the rut has been the hardest. I, I did a goat hunt this year in Stewart. And I got to say for like just physical, physically grueling, like snowshoeing with an 85 pound pack on, that was probably one of the most physically challenging hunts I've ever done. Yeah. I think elk in the rut, man, for me is one of the hardest because it's like nonstop. And it's like, whereas glassing hunts, like I've done a bunch of coos deer stuff in Arizona. There's like sprints of hard, but then you're kind of like chilling out. And the other thing, and I could be full of shit and I could be find out when I'm wrong, but with sheep not being so, what's the word? Corpuscular, like dawn, dusk, yeah, driven like elk and deer are where it's like, you got to be able to crack a dawn. And that's like that first two hours. If you don't get action, you're kind of fucked. And then you're walking around all day. And then the same thing to finally be after an animal. That's not so driven by the time of day. And like, I can just sit and take my time and glass and maybe they come out or maybe they won't. I think that's going to be another aspect of sheep hunting. It's going to be a dynamic that I'm going to like about it because it takes, there's stress, man, when it comes to like those really dawn and dusk focused animals. Cause if you miss your window, you've kind of wasted a day. Big time. Yep. I a hundred percent agree. And I think the only reason sheep hunting is typically harder than like a mountain Alpine mule deer hunt is simply because of the fact that you have to cover more ground, right? right? So you have your whole camp on your back. And like you said, you can look around and you can see all the country around you. And if there isn't a sheep there, just keep moving on. Cause there isn't a sheep there. Right. Right. Whereas if you're in mule deer alpine country, there's probably a deer right there. You just right. got to sit and wait them out. So you don't have to move nearly as far. It's just grueling in the aspect, the mule deer hunt, that you have to wait and be more patient. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> we'll edit that out. <coughs> yeah, no worries. So, yeah, that's my, my two cents on it anyways. Um, you're going to love it. If you're physically active, you love the mountains. Yeah. A sheep hunts for you for sure. Well, it's funny. And I've, I've mentioned this several times in the podcast, but I kind of got bit with the elk obsession and I have a wife and a young daughter and I'm, I'm very lucky to be able to go away as many times as I do during the year. But I'm also very aware of the proximity of hunts to each other. I could try and put at least two or three months between hunts. Cause I know it's a bit of a grind for my yeah. wife. And because elk has always been the kind of middle two or last two weeks of September, that's nuked sheep for me because there's no other, it, it, there was just no way I was doing a two week sheep hunt and then a two week elk hunt back to back. Like it's just right. not happening. And now that I've taken an elk with my bow and I kind of feel a little bit of that pressure being relieved. And I'll be honest, 
and I'm going to get flamed for this and I don't really give a shit. I prefer to hunt elk in the States. A hunting elk on foot with a bow in British Columbia is incredibly difficult. Yeah. Primarily because of the pressure. You're, you're competing against guys with rifles on jet boats and horses. And that's how people hunt elk in BC. And I'm not going to shit on that. If that's your party, have at it. But it's almost like taking a, a, a knife to a gunfight. Yep. And it's just like I've been in valleys. I've gone to bed with bugles. And then just at the end of, of shooting light, I hear one gunshot and I wake up to a ghost town. And when you're in an archery only season in a place like Montana or Wyoming, it just doesn't happen. Some dude can kill an elk 300 yards away and like none of the other elk give a shit. And you can just wake up and hunt elk again mm-hmm. in the morning. Mm-hmm. And so when COVID was closed, when with the border still closed and everything, and with the, I just had a grinder of an elk hunt last year, had a blast, had a couple close encounters, came to full draw on a mountain caribou at 85 yards. That was badass. Nice. But it was just not the hunt I wanted again this year. And it was like, I didn't want to get outfitted. I, I, I like outfitting and I like going with guides for certain things. But when it comes to especially my fall hunts, like those are kind of my challenges to undertake. And I, without having the hardware of a jet boat or horses, I was just like, I'm not just, I'm just not going to do this again. Yeah. And that was when I really decided like, yeah, let's go for the sheep. But if I was to write a list of what I love about hunting and why I hunt, I'm writing about a sheep hunt. One of my frustrations with elk hunting, even like, let's take the, the kind of Northern Rockies, like Fort Nelson corridor for elk hunting, even up there, you're, it's on foot. It's hard to get like really deep and, and secluded in a reasonable way where you're actually going to be able to get an elk out on your back. That's the other thing about elk hunting elk solo is kind of ridiculous. Cause like, how are you going to get this like 300 pounds of meat back out to the road where sheep, you can go 15, 20 miles. Do you know what I mean? And as long as you know how to pack, you're going to be able to bring that thing, you know, back out with you. But I'm, I'm really looking forward to it, man, for a lot of reasons. And I'm going with two other dudes. We've never hunted before, but this will be one of my first, like really kind of hardcore backpack hunts where I've got other capable dudes with me. And I'm, I'm looking forward to that too, because I think it's going to be, I I think I tend to make things a little bit more difficult than they need to be. And I'm looking forward to like the fellowship and and a a little bit more like of an enjoyable time because you got some people there to share it with. No, and that's some of the beauty of sheep hunting for sure is just sharing that experience in the mountains with someone, right? I've done it alone before too. And it's, it gets lonely, right? Like no matter who you are, even I love, I love being on my own, but it, it's nice to have a little bit of support out there just to know you, somebody can help you pack out a sheep. Once you get one, yeah. I'll be back to camp, whatever. Right. I think the moral support too, like you're looking at an animal that you're not going to be in the action every day, you know, and you could be going multiple days between decent sightings. If you, if you're lucky to get that many at all and just having some other dudes around to share that burden with yeah, and keep each other motivated and more eyeballs. Do you know, there's going to be three of us, I, it, you know, if we're not seeing the action we need to see, I, it's very realistic to kind of split up for a couple of days here and there and just have that much higher likelihood of, mm-hmm. of covering more ground. 100%. Yep. So because sheep season is coming up and a lot of people are kind of prepping for sheep hunting and you have, you know, far more experience than I do. That's for sure. What are some, and I don't want to just ask it open-ended, but what are some, maybe there's a better way to, to ask this question. My, my general impression is like, what, what advice do you have 
Oh, hang on a sec. What advice do you have? And let's, let's keep it to like, and maybe not first year, but let's call them like novice to intermediate sheep hunters. These guys that are in their first two or three years and yep. haven't taken a sheep yet. And we're talking, might be on horse, might be on backpack, but we're talking about these kind of like probably Northern Rockies, maybe, maybe over the West, but these kind of like BC resident guys just trying to get after it. I think what a lot of people make the mistake of when they get out sheep hunting, even in your first five years, is they think you need to do as much walking as you can, going on stop. You got to be super physically fit and just like die hard, you know, nutcase out there. And that's not the case at all. We always say at Arctic Red, like one, trust the land because it holds sheep. They're there. You just need to know that and know that they're there. And two, camp in the right spot. That is so key. So for someone that doesn't know, it's kind of hard to pick the right spot. I I understand that. But what I mean by that is pick somewhere that's obviously you have water somewhere nearby. So you you can get water whenever you need it. You can boil coffee, suppers, whatever. But somewhere that you have a good vantage point that you can roll out of bed first light in the morning and you can glass because those sheep will be active first thing. Okay. No sheep will be active first, like last thing, right at dark too. And if you have to walk five miles back to your camp every single day, you're going to miss a lot of quality glassing time. So camp in the right spot. That's super, super key for us. And what we do, for example, at Arctic Red, if we're going to backpack hunt, you know, stay in one area for three days and glass the hell out of it. When you think you're done and you're exhausted, keep glassing. Just there's sheep there and they might be tucked in the rocks if it's hot and just not showing themselves until dark. Right. Right. Um, they might not be where you expect them to be. They might be in some super steep Canyon where you think there's no vegetation, but there's vegetation there for them. Right. right? Um, they find it. So look everywhere. Don't just look where you think there are sheep. They're all over the freaking map. When you have to move camp because you've, you think you've exhausted that area, go five to 10 miles away make a new camp and then base from there for another two or three days and then keep leapfrogging like that. That, that gives you a chance to eat, you know, three days worth of food so that your next leg, you have that much less weight. Um, and you know, you've done a good job and you're not missing something because those sheep will migrate through those zones. Right. So you don't want to glass the area for one day and then be like, move on. And then all of a sudden the sheep that you're moving towards is actually moving where you just were. So you're completely bypassing each other. And it happens all the time with people that walk way too fast through the country. Um, I like getting up top. You know, I love climbing mountains. And a lot of people just glass from the creek bottom. But your vantage point is so limited. You can't see everything. So I will kick my ass and I'll find the biggest mountain I can find. And I sit on the very tippity top all day long. And I'll leave pretty much when it's dark. So if I can see a mountain 20 miles away and just see a part of it, you might see rams move out into this little spot you won't see from anywhere else. And at least, you know, okay, there's sheep there. We can go there when we're done here. So it gives you options. Um, But don't be afraid to climb a mountain every single day if you have it in you, you know, and spend the full day up there. Just bring lots of water. Don't, Don't shy out on water. That's a huge one. This is great advice. And I know my sheep hunting partner, Tristan, is going to be listening to this right now. And I got to give him a shout out because he listened to this. I did a podcast with my elk hunting partner and I, I kind of, 
I have this, I'm known for like going a little bit harder than is likely reasonable and burning a lot of boot leather. And as soon as he heard the podcast, Tristan hit me up and he's been hunting sheep for six years. He hasn't taken one yet, but like dude comes from a good sheep hunting lineage and he knows his shit. And he's like, are you going to be super content on burning boot leather? Or are you going to be okay sitting and glassing as long as it takes? Like the way you should be approaching a stones hunt. Cause that's the other thing interesting about stones is like, and I don't want to say glassing for dolls is easy by any stretch, but the fact is they're a white sheep and they're going to stick out. Stones even have that added layer that you could be looking right at them. And until the ear twitches in the right way, or they get up to take a piss or that, that one thing happens and they kind of separate themselves from, from the background. So it was funny because he hit me up and it was like, I made a mental note to myself and I've been trying to gear myself up for that because I do have a hard time recognizing that the sitting is the hunting and you don't always have to be moving to feel productive. So right. I'm like, that's this little mantra that I keep telling myself. And I like that idea. I've heard that before too, like glass the whole basin and then do it again mm-hmm. and then go have a snack and then do it a third time. Like it's yeah. like, it's not glassed until you've, you've gone over it multiple, multiple times. And I think at different times during the day too, I feel like and I won't get into the particulars, but a lot of what you said resonated with the game plan we've kind of already made for ourselves and like getting into a position where you're kind of topographically advantaged and you're kind of have the ability to look at a couple of different ranges at a couple of different distances at the same time. And yeah. I think our big thing is going to be proximity to water because we have like a good idea of where some might be. And we want it. We'd rather camp up high rather than down low. Um, I think it will be one of the difficult points for us. We'll be seeing if we can locate like a reliable source of water close to a good, a good camping spot will be kind of one of the primary challenges for us. Yeah. That's definitely going to be the hardest for sure. Yeah. Water's water's a tough one. Water's life, man. So you need it. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, definitely. But if you're, if you're the guy that loves burning boot leather, I'm the same way the solace you will find in hiking a big ass mountain, getting to the top of it and you're working your ass off to get there. If you have that big of an area to glass, it will keep you focused and busy. And I don't stop. I mean, I do a circle and start again and do a circle and start again. And if you do it right, you're somewhere on a ridge that maybe you can hop from this side of the ridge to that side of the ridge. So once you finish one, you can go for a hundred meter walk and flat the other side. So you can stay active no matter what. I mean, there's definitely options. It just depends on the, on the terrain you're in, but I, I find it, I don't get bored. I mean, do you find yourself primarily using your spotter once you've actually seen something, or do you also do exploratory glassing or gridding with your spotter, even if you haven't actually found anything yet? So I start with my binos and, and opt- optics are key. Like if you got a shitty pair of binos, you're so limited you know, and I, I'm not going to be, I'm not going to tote brands or nothing. Right. But optics are key. So when I start, I start with my binos cause they're way more comfortable. I'll just do a super rough, you know, kind of grid pattern, yeah. hit up all the skylines, hit up the basins that are green, the water sources, places that I think they, that might hold rams or sheep right off the bat, kind of do that fast right off the bat in case yep, there's yep. people that are leaving the country. Sure. Uh, so skylines are key there. And then if I don't find anything right away, then I'll do a slower grid pattern with the binos and just really pick everything up and down uh, comfortably. And then once I've exhausted that, then I'll pick out the spotter. 
Okay. But typically I'm really only looking through the spotter full time unless I really need to pick out details super far away or figure right. out if what I'm looking at is a sheep or not. Um, you'll just, you'll exhaust yourself trying to look through a spotter, you know, long-term. Yeah. And, and that's one of the reasons I bought a BTX, you know, the dual eyepiece spotter. Yeah. That's a game changer, especially for mule deer hunting. It's heavy. It's obnoxious to try to carry, but you can look through that thing all day long and it is beautiful. Yeah. My and, buddy, Tim, who guides in Alaska, he's a big BTX guy. Yeah. And I think, I think there's use cases for it. 100%. I just moved up to the NL peers, the 12, uh, the 12 power yep. earlier this year. And then my spotter, I have the 95 millimeter Zeiss, um, nice. Yeah. Uh, Harpia. Um, but again, it's kind of limited cause it's just got the single eyepiece and I'm the same way. Like I can go 10, 20, 30 minutes, I guess with my, with my spotter, but I also find there's a difference between I've located an animal and I'm either keeping my eye on it or I'm trying to get a closer look to see if it's worth making a play. Mm-hmm. Th- that is one type of eye strain in, a, strain in a spotter, which I find is kind of minimal because you can kind of be in and out of it and you're just taking little looks. Yeah. It's that exploratory glassing with the spotter where you're like really focused and straining. I do find you're kind of limited just in the physical capacity to like, there's only a finite amount of time you're going to be able to do that, even with the best glass on the planet before you kind of start to wear down. 100%. And I mean, for the first 12 years of my guiding career, I couldn't afford good optics, right? So I was using decent stuff, but like, you know, like a Leopold, for example, it's good glass, but to look for it 12 hours a day, it wears on you, you know? So I was doing that and I was so dedicated to glassing. When I got to the point where I would just start picking apart the slope, I would be on that scope with one eye for hours and hours and hours, especially during moose season, trying to pick apart forests, looking for bedded bulls. Right. And it paid off, but my right eye is messed up. Like if I compare color color variations between my two eyes, my left is way stronger. My, I have 20, 20 vision in this eye and this one doesn't. And it's literally from looking through a spotting scope. Wild. Over the years. Yeah. Dedication. Yeah. Yeah. Part of being a guide or just stupidity. I don't know. <laughs> but I always say, if you're going to be dumb, you better be tough. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, so let's get back to Arcadia. I want to be, I want to be cognizant of your, of your time here. Actually, you know what? Let's hit up a couple of these uh, Instagram questions just because people did and did, did um, take the time to send them in. And this is something else, because I remember listening to a podcast with this guy named Buck Bowden, and this is an outfitter out of Alaska, and his place burnt down too. And I've always wondered, are you even allowed to insure things like this that are out in the middle of the forest? And if you are, is it just so insanely expensive that it's not possible? Or, or somebody was curious about that. So what, what's the deal with that? No, that's a great question. And most of the people that are asking us about this fire says, well, don't you have insurance? And yeah, great question. So it is ridiculously expensive to try to ensure a remote base camp location like this that has so much, you know, expensive equipment somewhere that you can't patrol on a daily basis. So yeah. there isn't good security there. You know, it's not stored in a secure way. So people could go steal stuff, blah, blah, blah. There, it, there's no end to it. Right. So the insurance on this stuff alone is through the roof. COVID didn't help. COVID prices jacked it up almost 300% from what it was three years ago. Yep. And then on top of that, you know, the fact that we haven't worked for a year and a half, we couldn't afford the insurance to full value of what it sh- we should have normally insured. Yep. Yep. So we did the best we could, you know, we're a younger family. 
we bought a house in 2019, our townhouse in Kelowna. So that's expensive. We got a mortgage. We just had a baby in October of this year. So now we have those bills. So, and we're still paying off this outfit that we bought, which is a pretty steep bill on top of that. So to afford insurance that you typically don't use, that's super expensive. Thank God we had what we had and we had some, but the insurance we have is going to cover maybe a third of the value we had for people that are asking. So um, I've talked to a lot of outfitters that have been in the industry for 30, 35 years that have million dollar lodges and ours was no, by, by no means that expensive, but it was a quarter of the way there, you know, it was worth 250 or 300, what we had. Those outfitters have zero insurance. Most of them are like, ah, we don't, we don't cover anything because we can't afford to like, yeah. So the fact that we had some made me feel good about myself knowing that, you know, we're a young family, we're new to the business. At least we were smart enough to have what we had. Yeah. And we did the best we could, you know, insuring it. No, dude, I think that's, I think that's super reasonable. And I feel you, I have to pay business insurance just for consulting. And it has literally tripled between two years ago and now and went up like 120% last year and another 180% this year. And it was, I was trying to, I was asking the dude, I'm like, what is going on? Like, because your, your premiums are based on whatever kind of population group or similar to you and buy similar types of insurance. So I was like, I still can't figure out what it was that went on that, because normally it comes from an escalation of claims when there's more claims for businesses from people like you in businesses like you, your premiums tend to go up because they look at you all as a class and I, I still can't figure out why my insurance for my business has gone up. As, and I don't have a choice because there will be disclaimers on contracts that you need to be insured for liability up to a half a million or whatever in case yeah. I do something wrong and it causes damage to the other business. But also we're talking like even at its escalated rates, mine's like four or five grand a year. So it's like nowhere near what... Yeah, that sounds super reasonable to me, man. I think you're always... I'm always playing a balancing act with insurance because it's one of these things where if nothing goes wrong and you pay for that for 10 or 15 years, it's kind of what it would have cost you if something did go wrong yeah. anyways. And I think taking the blended approach of minimal coverage to you know kind of help cover it while still bringing your premiums down to a rate that you can actually afford is a yeah. pretty sensible approach in my opinion. Yeah, no, for sure. And like, I'm not the guy that's going to hide numbers and I don't care if people ask me a number, I'll give it. So like, for example, for the insurance we had, we were over 20 grand. Wow. A year um, for our premiums. Right. And that's a third of coverage for what we should have had. So So, see, there's a perfect example. You literally pay that for 10 years. And if nothing had happened, that's what you can't cost. Exactly. Or close enough. Do you know what I mean? Let's take it out to 12 years, 240, 250, close enough. Like there's a valid argument that like, you know, after this fire, you're going to get burnt down again in another 12, probably not. You know what I mean? Like that's a tough decision, man. I get it. Exactly. And 20 grand worth of insurance pays for my mortgage for over half the year. I mean, it's, it's, it's a tough balance. What do you, what do you do? You you do your best with what you have. Right. And that's what we did. And this is what we're left with. And now we have to deal with the repercussions of that, unfortunately. Um, okay. So what does the re cause the other question that somebody wanted to know is like, you know, is there going to be a chance for like people to come out and help? Is there going to be like a spring rebuild or something like this? And maybe this is too early to answer this question, but what, what is the, you know, I love the hashtag rebuilding Arcadia. What are your plans at this point from a structural perspective 
and then from like a client generation business perspective? Yeah. So this has been my nightmare to deal with for the last 20 days here. It's been nothing but calls and emails. We were in an interesting situation with our previous camp. So the outfitter we bought from was good friend with the ranch owner at the time who said, Hey, I need a, a camp location to go through the process with government it takes forever. Can I build here? Because you have 5,000 acres and you don't use a lot of it. And the guy's like, yeah, no problem. So he built these cabins on this private land. That ranch owner went out of business, sold to a new company who uh. bought it, and they owned it when we bought it from this outfitter, John Sievers. We came into play and they were like, who the hell are you? And, you know, why are you here? And I, you know, we're a small family and we're, we're not in your face and we're not obnoxious. And, you know, they have cattle on the landscape and we were helping to trap wolves and stuff like that, look after their place. So we had a great relationship. So that being said, the location we had, we could probably rebuild on it's private land. We don't own that private land, but we have a good relationship, but that location is decimated. There's nothing left. Going back last week was so depressing seeing what we had and knowing what it is now. There was giant ponderosa pine there that are two, 300 years old. Yeah. And those are gone. There's nothing left. You can see our camp clearly from the road now. And before it was, you never knew that we were beside a road system. So we're not going to rebuild there because we don't want to. So now we're left with trying to find somewhere else on that private land if they'll allow us to relocate or to getting a license of occupation or a lease from the government, which is a super lengthy process. It takes 18 to 24 months to get approval. They said that we can try to speed up the process for you because of your circumstances. Realistically, that's going to look like 12 to 18 months, you know, at best. And then you have all this first nation consultation it has to go through. So that slows it down as well um, because they have to consult on it. And then you have all these other 10 years in place, right? So like we have one location that we've kind of thought this might be a good spot for our base camp to rebuild on. Every other spot I thought of that was by water, that was in nice timber, private, those locations are decimated. Those trees are dead. They are the same as our previous camp is now. So we have one option. That's it. Um, unless we buy some private land, that's a super retarded rate that we can't afford anyways, right? Yeah, yeah. So we have one option um, and it's on crown. Like, so you it would qualify if they give you the permission. Correct. It's okay. on crown right now. The issue I'm dealing with is it's, it's on, it's a grazing lease, which is almost as strong as, as ownership of that land itself. Right. Luckily it's part of the grazing lease with the ranch that we have a good relationship with. Okay. I'm still waiting to hear back whether that matters or not, because it'll still have to go through the process. It just adds another element to the process. So it might take longer, but that's what we're left with. We have one option. Um, So once that is done, then we can rebuild in that location. But this is going to be a super lengthy process. So in the meantime, we're stuck with uh, a portable camp. So wall tents, mountain tents, maybe an RV, if we can find one, something like that. Right. Um, That's, that's about it. So our clients, so what we were trying to give our clients was a really comfortable base camp location, right? Where they had Wi-Fi if they wanted it because they're businessmen all the time. Yep. They have a shower if they want to use it. They have an indoor toilet, whatever. And that's all gone. So now that we're back to square one, now they have to realize, and most of them are pretty good about it. 
um, that this is going to be pretty rustic for the next one or two years, you know, until we can rebuild. Luckily, we have a lot of good repeat clients that have become friends of ours. And I think they realize that's the circumstances and they're willing to work with us. But we have had clients that have said, hey, like, we don't want to come until you rebuild and kind of get things sorted again. And the, the area itself kind of recovers. So they've deferred now. So now we've lost that income as well. Yep. So uh, it's just, it's a domino effect, right? Uh, yeah, but sorry to your question. That was a long-winded way of getting there. Um, once that approval process is in place and we can actually rebuild for sure, we'll, we'll have a building party for sure. And, you know, my plan hopefully is to, if I can find one, buy a sawmill and try to mill our own timber to try to save cost there. Um, Cause there's so much standing dead timber now. Right. Yep. But that requires another permit for salvage logging. Um, but to say that we built this cabin, you know, whatever we rebuild from timbers that are local, that'd be pretty phenomenal as well. Right. Yeah. That'd be pretty badass. Uh, so, so that's the plan. We've had a lot of people come forward that are carpenters, plumbers, electricians, and said, Hey, when the time comes, we're offering our services. And that's, that's amazing. These are people I don't even know. Um, so it shows the scope of the community, right? The hunting. Community. I also want to give it, everybody on the podcast knows I'm a bit of a sick guy. That's fine. I, I want to give a note of appreciation to Kuyu. Yeah. What they did was outstanding for everybody who doesn't know. And it wasn't like it was anonymous, but they donated five grand. Um, to the yeah. GoFundMe and for, and I will also say, I think the only two real camo companies that are in relative competition with, with each other are Kuyu and Sitka. I think they're tier one, everybody else is tier two, three and, and whatnot under that. I've had Kuyu stuff. You would be hard pressed to complain about any of their stuff. They make beautiful, super tough shit. Very impressed with I'm not a big fan of their backpacks, but that's just my own personal opinion. Yeah. Everything else th- that they make, I think, is is very high quality. And for them to have the kind of ethos as, a, as an organization to recognize that that was something that they wanted to stand behind, I think they deserve a pat on the back because everybody's always toting like, you know, big evil corporation, this and that. And it's like, maybe it's, only, it's probably not just the hunting industry, but I do think companies do participate at the grassroots level in the hunting industry. And I think they deserve a pat on the back for that because that's no small contribution. And that's pretty badass for a company of that size to give a shit like that. Yeah, no, that was phenomenal. That blew us away for sure. And especially because I haven't worn Kuyu in six or seven years. Really? Uh, Yeah. I mean, I, I wore it. You almost feel obligated to now. Uh, yeah, (laughs) Yeah. yeah. which is a smart business move on their part. It really is. Yeah. There's, this is a double-edged sword. Like yeah. I'm not an idiot here, but for sure. It was pretty amazing to see. Like I've been wearing Cryptek for the last couple of years, which is phenomenal gear as well. I've worn Sitka in the past, great gear. It's all good. It's all comparable. I'm currently wearing Keenis simply because we did a, a hunt with them in November. Yep. That went in the Wolves film. Super awesome gear as well. Good price point. And, and to be honest with my situation, I would go out today and buy Kuyu gear to say thank you and, and, proudly wear their gear again i just can't afford to to do yeah. that because i've got this other stuff i gotta wear out i think they'd it. rather you spend the five grand on yeah. the re- rebuilding of the place anyways so i'm, I'm sure they understand i yeah. uh, that's funny because i i did i did rec- remember you wearing the canis stuff but i thought for sure you would have been a diehard kuyu guy and that's why they did it the fact that you're not and they did it i think speaks even more about yeah. the generosity 
100% of the donation. So good on him, man. Yeah, man. Blows me away. And and I want to give two more shout outs to people as well. Uh, our other big donation, Mike Taylor, he's a good, he's been a good friend of ours, but he's just an average dude from Utah, sold his business recently, uh, his mechanic business, and he donated 4,000 bucks. And we actually have a bigger donation than QU gave us as well. It was privately donated from a friend of ours from New Zealand. He's an average Joe. He's a government worker, maybe makes a hundred thousand a year, you know, at best. And he, he donated more than QU did. And I'm not going to say Holy the number, but shit. could not believe it. And I told him to go screw himself. Like I'm not taking his money. And it was, there was no, no for an answer. It was blew us away. So those three donations, and I'm not belittling any other donations because everything no. huge means the world to us. Yeah. But that generosity is insane. And like all these thousand dollar donations, even the $20 donations from people I, I haven't seen in 20 years. Yeah. It's insane. Like the, the generosity people are showing and I can't thank everyone individually. So hopefully they can maybe hear this or find a good way to do it. But it, it, we're, it's so grateful. We're so grateful for all of it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So let's just, just to remind people one more time, if you wanna, if you wanna help support the cause, for now the best way to do that is to go to Arcadia Outfitting on Instagram at Arcadia Outfitting, all one word. Hit up the the link when I post this show, uh, which for me and you will be Thursday this week. Um, I will also I'll, I'll I'll repost it in my my stories and I'll include the information in my link tree in my bio, but. Go to at Arcadia Outfitting, hit up the GoFundMe. Any help people can do to spread the word on social media. These things tend to have a pretty sharp interest cycle. Everybody gets on it in the beginning, shoots through the roof, and then it kind of dies off. It's been a few weeks now. If we could get another second push, it's yeah. never as big as the first, but it might kind of breathe some life back into it. I think that would be really helpful. And I think if people hear this, it's going to humanize it. A little more like the pictures were devastating enough, but to understand like who it happened to and what it means for them and the work that they need to do moving forward to get things back on track, I think personalizes it to another degree. So anything else you want to, you want to add or talk about or links or, you know, even self-promote, are you looking to fill hunts this fall? Like what, yeah. Anything else you want to close with, please feel free. For sure. No, thanks, man. Um, Another way to go to the GoFundMe as well, which is pretty straightforward if you just googled arcadia outfitting a-r-c-a-d-i-a it brings you to my homepage, to my actual website and we created a landing page that is directly linked to the gofundme so you can click directly on that landing page and it'll also link you over so there's a few less steps there if you just google our business arcadia outfitting um and again remember like jay just said slide that little slider from, I think it starts at 12% for a tip. You don't have to do that. Just slide it to zero and you don't have to tip GoFundMe. And I think that's stopping a lot of people because they, they yeah. don't know that. Slide it to zero. And if you don't need a hundred bucks, a hundred bucks comes to us. So just a heads up there. Um, just to personalize it a little more, you know, people are thinking, okay, you lost cabins and you can rebuild those cabins to mention some of the contents that we lost, which are completely priceless and we'll never be able to replace them. My mom gave us a crib that she grew up in. It was 72 years old. Her 12 brothers and sisters used that crib. It was hand sawn logs from a farmer back in Alberta. 
we painted it to try to renew it, rejuvenate it this last year. And our baby Isabella got to use it a couple times at the cabins. And so that burned in the fire, a 72 year old crib. I mean, that's priceless, right? We'll never get that back. Um, I had my dream rifle there is this $12,000 proof research rifle that I custom built. It was going to be the only rifle I was pretty much ever going to use again for everything, for guiding, for myself. Um, I, that burned up in the fire and it wasn't supposed to be there. I left it there mid June on my last bear hunt. The only bear hunt we did this spring with clients and was going back started July to go explore the area more. And I left it and that burned up in the fire. Um, and then like little mementos, like, man, some, some little carvings made out of Marco Polo horn and Ibex horn that I picked up when I was guiding in Kyrgyzstan, you know, they were, pretty small, but they're just beautiful handmade carvings from these local Kyrgyz people. And, you know, I only paid 50 bucks there for, for each one. Right. But that stuff to get it again, I got to go to Kyrgyzstan. I got to go to that location and to pick that up. That'd be another five grand to try to fly there and get this one stupid little item. And these are items I've picked up over 17 years of guiding. Right. Yeah. Um, and deadheads that I carried on my back for 30 miles while I'm on a sheep hunt. Cause it, you're not going to leave it lying there. It's so awesome. You yeah. got to keep sheep hunting. Then you kill a ram. You got to carry the ram. Now you got this extra weight. I mean, all that stuff's gone. Um, so 17 years of history guiding in the mountains, we lost it all. So it's not just the amount of money to rebuild. It's, it's everything, which is impossible to replace, but that's just so people understand a little more um, what we've lost, I guess. Yeah. So and in closing, what about hunts? What if somebody wants to hunt with Arcadia? What's your next year to you got spots? What are you looking to fill, if anything? Yep. Um, COVID's completely screwed us around, right, with border closures. So we started booking some Canadians. Um, and now with this, this border opening up, potentially this fall, now we're kind of double booked and I've got a it's a scheduling nightmare. Yeah. Um, on top of everything. We're pretty much fully booked this year. Okay. Um but we're looking for bookings for next year for a few things for cougar for mule deer. Um, more or less, we're, we're pretty much booked out for the next two years on most okay. things. Um, but there's definitely options there for sure. Um, and we need to work to try to get revenue going again after not working for a year and a half and try to replace these cabins. So yeah, we're going to rebook whatever we can. <laughs> so reach out to us if you want to hunt. All right. so Sounds good. Ben. Awesome. Thanks so much, man. I've been meaning to, I've been meaning to have you on for a while and it was unfortunate that this is the circumstance that kind of had to prompt the invite. Um, and let's, let's check back in maybe after the fall hunts are, are over, you can kind of let us know how things are going on. We'll check back in with you, see how your season went, see what the plans are moving forward. Wish you all the best, man. And please reach out if there's anything else you need, you need help promoing or shared or any of that kind of stuff. Just, just let me know, man. Will do. No, thanks so much. And thanks for having me. Good to be here. You bet. All right. Have a good one, brother. Cheers.